what I decided to do, we started on the on the Holy Spirit, and then we're going into the uh, teaching on providence and also look at the at the angels. But since we got started on that last week, I thought I'd like to go ahead and finish those verses up. In other words, we talked about it in an overall way, but I'd like to deal specifically with those verses that deal, you know, with the gifts of the Holy Spirit and look at them uh, in their context. And then having uh, uh, dealt with that, we'll set ourselves up for talking about the providence of God and the work of angels and the way God uh, does work in the, in the lives of Christians. Uh, the belief that Christians today receive what some call a non-miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit the primary passage that's used and the first one is always Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's the one that's quoted uh, more than any other one. Okay? Now the first observation I'd like to make on that, the term non-miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit is not in the scriptures. That term is, it says gift of the Holy Spirit. And the same with other places we're going to look at, but the term non-miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit uh, is not in the scriptures. In fact, I don't want to go into that now, but maybe later, I cannot with my mind comprehend a non-miraculous gift uh, in the sense that anything that is beyond the laws of nature uh, is in the miraculous realm to me. That if it is beyond the laws of nature, uh, and that means if there's something being done to my mind that cannot be explained by uh, the biological mind and my own spirit, uh, then that is, uh, that is outside the realm. And, and I, I don't know how I could refer to that if it was taking place in a in a non-miraculous way. That would I would personally interpret that as is outside of nature and therefore of a miraculous nature. Turn to John 7:39. Let's look at a couple of passages in the uh, promise from Jesus to the disciples before we uh, uh, get over there to Acts 2:38. And in fact, we're going to skip it and then come back to it. In John 7 and verse 39. It says, by this he meant, let's see, back up to verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, has said, streams of living water shall flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Okay? Notice the result of the Spirit given to the disciples he's talking to here is that streams of living water will come from it. Well, we know that's not literal water. So we know that spiritual life is going to be the result of, of, of the effect of the Spirit on them. But notice at this point, they did not have the Spirit, okay? Now, the observation I'd like to make is that uh, 
as we continue on and get through the Gospels, we end the Gospels without them having the Holy Spirit or any gift of the Spirit. And we get all the way to Acts uh, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit on the Apostles. But the point is, as we finish the Gospels, we look at these people, we can see that these disciples already believe in Jesus. Okay? They, and they have believed him, not as a result of something taking place in their mind. They have come to believe in him as a result of examining the resurrection. And they make such statements like, I won't believe unless I can touch where they put the nail and, and ram the spear. Uh, and Peter and John and the others, they would not believe until they actually saw him with their own eyes and they ate with him and, and, and experienced him over a period of 40 days through a plurality of experiences. But the point is, their belief came about as a result of, of evidence that they evaluated and then made their decision with their trust in him. Number two, we know that they all had repented of their sins. Uh, John baptized them, and they had repented of their sins. Number three, they had heard three years of teaching from Jesus, and they understood a whole lot of things. And he hadn't taught them everything, simply because they didn't have enough foundation. He said that uh, I did not teach you all truth because you were not yet ready for it, but the Holy Spirit will guide you on into all truth. But the point is, he was going to be guiding them into truth, and even with Jesus teaching them, it was taking place bit by bit as they were able to understand it, but then as they understood it, they were assimilating it into their own thinking. So they have come to understand about Jesus being the Son of God, his resurrection, They've repented of their sins. They understand a lot of things about the kingdom, not everything, but a lot of things. They understand about morality and things of this nature. And they're doing all of this without any gift of the Holy Spirit, just with Jesus teaching them and spending time. All right. Here in 739, though, we're talking about some miraculous thing from the Holy Spirit that there's going to come a time when they receive and then as a result, living water will go forth. And the Holy Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not been glorified. In other words, the indication is the need for the Holy Spirit comes about after Jesus has, has left. Okay, now while Jesus was here, and remember Jesus would even say, I will not leave you orphans, but I'll send you the comforter, the Holy Spirit. They didn't need him as long as they had Jesus. But then we ask ourselves the question, what did Jesus do for them? And I can't see him doing anything except giving them information. I mean, I know he's living a perfect life. And he's performing miracles to, as credentials of who he was. But he simply is giving them information. And every time they have a question, they go to Jesus and he answers their question. And so when Jesus leaves, he's not going to leave them as orphans. He needs to continue to communicate to them. And so he says, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, and he will guide you on into all truth. So he's going to continue to do for them what Jesus has been doing. And Jesus said, he'll take from me and the Father and give to you. And then also he said in John 14, 26, uh, I will bring to your, he will bring to your remembrance all I've taught you. So the Holy Spirit, according to what Jesus said to them, was to bring to their remembrance all he had taught them was to guide them on into all truth and was to perform a function for them that Jesus really had been performing while he was with them. 
Okay, now, let's come on over to uh, uh, Acts 2.38, just for a moment. Look at the context. Peter starts his sermon, beginning with uh, uh, 14 there, the 16th verse, and he says, this was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he's saying this as they're speaking in languages that they never learned, right? They are speaking in uh, languages. Let me get you. They're speaking in languages they've never learned. There's been that loud rushing wind. And then something as a fire standing over the apostles and identifying them. Okay? And based on that, so here they are, speaking languages they've never learned, identified in a miraculous way, the crowd called together in a very special way. And the way he starts off is saying that this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. So this miraculous outpouring of the Holy Spirit was spoken of by Joel. And he says, in the last days... God says, I will pour out my spirit. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Okay? So, what is happening, he says, is the fulfillment of what Joel said. But what Joel said applied to more than just the apostles. And, and the apostles quote that, yeah, that I'll pour out my spirit and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Okay, he concludes his sermon and has presented the evidence for uh, Jesus as the Son of God. And then we get to Acts 2 and verse uh, 38. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus. But look at what has happened before this, verse 37. It says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to the other apostles, what shall we do? And he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, now, notice first of all, they have come to believe in Jesus as the Son of God through reasoning and evidence. They've heard a sermon. Based on that sermon, they've been convinced that uh, they crucified the Son of God. They've heard these prophecies from the Old Testament. They've listened to an eyewitness testimony of the apostles concerning his resurrection. And they've heard them speaking in languages of all of these people, wherever they were from. And they've had them identified in a miraculous way. And so based on all of this, they are convinced. And so before any gift of the Holy Spirit, they come to believe. And before any gift of the Holy Spirit, they're told to repent. So they, their belief and their repentance comes about. Uh, as a result of evaluating information and evaluating themselves. All right, then he says receive the gift of the Holy, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now the question to my mind right away is, if, uh, if I'm there as one of those thousands listening to that sermon, and I see people speaking in languages they didn't learn, and I see the fire, and then they quote Joel, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. And then I become convinced, and they tell me, after telling me that this is the fulfillment of Joel, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
personally, I'm going to expect something like what I see. I'm going to expect uh, either some languages or the ability to prophesy some miraculous element because I'm looking at this as the fulfillment of what Joel said, and they have it. And, and after I repent and I'm baptized, they're telling me that I'm going to receive a gift of the Holy Spirit also. I, to my mind, too, if he just if it's what what people believe today, a lot of people believe today, that it's the Holy Spirit that you get, then I don't know why he didn't just say and receive the Holy Spirit rather than the gift of the Holy Spirit. To my mind, if I say, and I've heard this illustration before, you know, if 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 I give a gift, it's the gift of my gift. It's not me. It's a gift I'm giving. Yeah. It's not. It could be either way on the construction. It could be the gift of the Holy Spirit, or it could be the gift of the Holy Spirit. It, the 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 gift. English the construction would allow either way. Oh, really? And and see, sometimes it just says receive the Holy Spirit. Sometimes yeah. it says gift on the thing that uh, that it, it uses both ways. But you're right. That is that is one possible your interpretation there. Okay. But, so there are passages that just say and receive the Holy Spirit. Right. Okay. All right. But the, the okay. point is that what do you think if you take yourself back and you put yourself in that audience and you're a Jew and you've been told this is the fulfillment of the prophet Joel that in the last days and they are speaking in languages they never learned they're prophesying to you and preaching this lesson uh, the, the miraculous element is there and then you're told repent be baptized and you'll receive uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit I would expect something like what I read about in Joel or what, the, what I see of the apostles there if I were there on that occasion I was going to ask but there's nothing here that specifically says that any of those people had any of those miraculous manifestations. I mean, it says that those who accepted his message were baptized. Uh -huh. And that's all it says. It doesn't say that and they spoke in tongues or they did anything else. It just well, he doesn't keep in mind, it doesn't, oh, I don't, we'll get to that uh, as to what, I don't believe they all Okay. Necessarily did, and then, uh, in fact, I don't believe they got it uh, just from uh, being baptized. I don't believe anybody has ever received the gift of the Holy Spirit from being baptized, you know, personally. Well, well, I, I just, I've looked at this several times, and it's, sometimes I wonder is if when he says you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, is the gift of the Holy Spirit salvation? I mean, can you look at it that way? Well, because over, well, over in Galatians three fourteen, there's a a verse, it says, He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Well, the Gentiles, I mean, to me, the promise of the Spirit would be salvation. Right. You have uh, both ways it's used. You have the promise of the Spirit in the Old Testament was eternal life or salvation in Christ. But in this particular context, though, he has just said this is the fulfillment of the prophet Joel and, and told you that his, in other words, he's told you this gift of the Spirit he has is in fulfillment of Joel. And then he tells you. And so I'm saying that, yeah, what you said would be a possible interpretation there. And what she said is a possible interpretation. But I'm saying that right now, obviously, 
you cannot narrow that interpretation down in a dogmatic way without going further, correct? Because what Barbara said would be a possible interpretation, what you said is definitely a possible interpretation. But I'm saying that from my standpoint, even though I can see the possibility of either one of those interpretations, uh, if I put myself in that audience, and I don't have Galatians there in front of me, and I don't have any of these other books, and all I've got is the Old Testament, and all the Old Testament has said is that the, the, the Spirit is going to be poured out in these last days, you know, when the New Covenant comes in, and, and these miraculous elements are going to be there. And I see them with the miraculous elements, and after they quote Joel, they say be baptized, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Personally, I would be thinking in terms of this being the fulfillment of what Joel said, because he said, even your sons and your daughters. Okay. Mark? Well, something that I thought about um, was, isn't there times where Paul, in his letters, evidently his authority has been questioned, and he, he tells them that when, when I come there, we'll see who has power. Mm -hmm. And so that makes, me, that makes me think, well, everybody there must not have had the kind of power that, that we hear Paul demonstrate. Okay, the, uh, in fact, he talks about the signs of an apostle, and even on this occasion, there's a different, there's definitely a distinction between these people and the apostles, because, come on down to verse uh, 42, and it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and to prayer, everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And so, obviously, even after they received whatever this gift was, they stood in awe of the apostles. All right, now, when Paul writes to Corinth, you have Paul, remember he says, I speak in tongues more than you all. Paul could raise the dead. Paul could perform miracles. Paul could speak in a, in a language. Paul could interpret. The apostles imparted these gifts, and we're going to look at that. And they had all these gifts working in them, just like Jesus had all the, everything working in him. But then they laid hands on these people, and when he writes to the church at Corinth, he says, now the guy that, unless, unless there's an interpreter, you don't use your gift of speaking the language. So apparently that this guy that had the gift of the Holy Spirit speaking through him in a language out there, he, he depended on somebody else who had the gift of interpretation. Then there was a guy with the gift of prophecy, and there was a guy with the gift of miracles, the gift of healings, the gift of knowledge, the gift of wisdom. And so they had all these gifts individually. In other words, that in fact, it seems like at Corinth, that the people, they had argued about who had the superior gifts. And, and remember, Paul enters into that. And he tells them that love's greater than all of them. But they, there, there seems to be a, a kind of an argument about who has the superior of the gifts there. And the, and the indication is that they're showing out in their service. And they have turned their service into just a, a show-out session. But the difference is that Paul has everything. And also... The indication is, with these gifts, there was not new revelation coming to them. That they could prophesy, dealing with the information that they had been taught by the apostles, and that uh, they had these gifts and all, and it, it, to interpret and work with them. But if they was given them any information, if they were given them any information, then they wouldn't have needed Paul to write the letter in the first place. And they wouldn't have needed Paul to come there. 
So Paul needed to come there, and he spoke with more authority than everybody else, and he needed to write that letter, and he's the one telling them how to control those gifts. So obviously, whatever they've got is grossly inferior to the apostles, that his is enough to make him stand head and shoulders in those gifts above the other. And in fact, he even says on one occasion that the thorn in the flesh that God did not remove from him, he said the reason was that you be not exalted for your many revelations. In other words, it's like that, that Paul had, God was using him in such an impressive way that there would have been the tendency for them to exalt him as a person, and God didn't want that. He wanted the message exalted, and so he protected Paul and also the message from that. All right, we have that gift then that can be interpreted in several ways, and, 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 and if we're going to stop right there, I don't know how anybody could be dogmatic on exactly what's being said. Let me ask you something, just quickly before you go on, because in, in verse 39 it says, This promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And I was wondering, the promise, in the context, I mean, I, mean, I can see how some people would read the promises that you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Some people might say, it's that, that that you will receive forgiveness of your sins if you repent bad times, or it might be all of the above. And I was just wondering, from the construction, okay, what, what's the proper interpretation of that? Look at Ephesians two, and the way another another time, and the way that is uh, used. Ephesians two, and I believe I've got the proper uh, uh, passage here. Ephesians two, and verse. Uh, 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. And he's talking about the Gentiles. Right. And see, the message here was going to the Jew. And keep in mind, I'm not sure that there's anybody that fully understood that at that time, because at this point in Pentecost, the Jew did not understand that the Gentile was going to be a fellow heir. That was a mystery, Paul said, until it was revealed. And so he said that, but then later on, the New Testament identifies those that were far off as the Gentile. And so the, the message was going to go to the Jew and then also to the Gentile. I, I guess my point was the, the focus being on the promise. The promise is for you. And, and I can see, I don't know if they do, but I can see someone who who holds to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit saying that, that that promise it says the promise is for you your children for all who are far off and then it says for all and for all whom the Lord our God will call which could even be extended into the the present day mm -hmm. and so yeah. I can see that and that's the reason I asked right well and in verse 33 it says uh, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. And so there's the promised Holy Spirit. And then down here he says the promise is for you and your children. And What you see and hear, right? In other words, the, the gift was something they could see and hear. Yeah. Okay. Uh, first up, uh, uh, I, I, let's, let's hold there just a second and go over and hit a few more passages because what I'm going to show on that when we hit this, 
That is the only passage. In other words, if that is a non-miraculous gift, then it's the only one in the New Testament because all the others are obviously talking about the miraculous gifts. They're all like over here in Acts, the eighth chapter. This was to be received at the baptism, right? And it was right after he quoted Joel and everything like that. Well, come over here to Acts 8 and uh, begin with verse 15.
two apostles come down there and they pray and they lay hands on them. And then they receive the Holy Spirit. And, and Luke records the observation that Simon makes that is passed on through the laying on of the apostles' hands. So definitely there were people who were baptized who didn't get it. It says, repent and be baptized and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But there was obviously those people said that they had not... Okay. Right. In fact, now come that, over one more thing. One, flip over just one more now to uh, Acts 10 and 47. And notice in what, let's see, I'll show you what we're doing here. Acts 10 and 47. Uh, okay. Uh, they heard them. Yeah, Acts 10. And he's speaking to Cornelius. And says in verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. Okay? And they had come with Peter, and they were astonished at the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he poured out, he poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking with tongues. Notice, it was the speaking in the tongues that convinced them that they had the Spirit. And that, that was the reason they accepted that. And praising God, and Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit as we have. Notice how a gift of the Holy Spirit and Holy Spirit are used interchangeably there. It says that uh, uh, in verse 45 that they were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out. And then it says they have received the Holy Spirit as we have. And uh, so you have them in that whole, in that entire context, uh, praising God and interchangeably receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit and re receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit was poured out here, and the apostles will later allude back to this, and it says it happened to them as on us at the beginning. In other words, they had to go all the way back to Pentecost to come to an incident where the Holy Spirit was poured out in this way. But the point is, the Holy Spirit was poured out so that the Jew would recognize that was God's stamp of approval on the Gentile. And then he says, can anybody forbid the water now that these should not be baptized? So obviously, those Jews were not going to baptize those believing Gentiles. And so the reason for the outpouring of the Spirit wasn't to save them. They came to believe by hearing the preaching. They repented of their sins. They wanted to be baptized, but the Jews didn't want to baptize them. And so then God poured the Spirit out, and they stood back and said they were amazed, and they were astonished. And they said, well, now can anybody forbid the water? And so no, with the God stamp of proof. so they go ahead. So they hear, they believe, they repent, uh, they acknowledge, they're baptized. But the Holy Spirit is poured out, and the Jews were not. In other words, those Jewish apostles were not going to impart gifts through the laying on of hands on these people. They weren't even going to baptize them. And so God does the same thing that he does at Pentecost, and there's only two times in the whole Bible where the Spirit is poured out without the direct intervention of the apostles' hands, and that is on the Jews on Pentecost and on the Gentiles when it first goes to the Gentiles, and the reason for it is so that the Jew will embrace the Gentile as an equal. And now you have all this debating taking place, and this is always the argument that the Gentile is going to come in. Come all the way over to 19th chapter now. And we're dealing with Gentiles here. 19th chapter. 
And it says, where Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. He found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, no, we have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And so Paul said then, what baptism did you receive? They said, John's. And Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied, and there were 12 men. So, again, the very fact that Paul met these believers who did not have the gifts of the Holy Spirit caused him to challenge their baptism. I mean, that's why he did. And so he challenges them. And he finds out that, y'all, yeah, we were baptized, but they were baptized back uh, with John's baptism, and they weren't even taught about Joel's prophecy or, the, or the, that their baptism was to be into Christ and all. And so Paul then baptizes them with the right information in their mind, and then he lays his hands on them. And when he lays, but notice now the first Gentiles in Acts 10, the Holy Spirit was poured out without the laying on of hands because the Jews wouldn't even go to baptize them, much less lay hands on them. Now, everybody understands it's going to the Gentile, so it's poured out, and the indication is that all these people you know, have, have some gifts that, that's obvious. Okay, later on, I won't read this passage. I'm, I'm a little confused because I thought we were first establishing that the Holy Spirit was given by the laying on of hands. Right. But this indicates that that it was that it still tied to baptism in that because of the fact, like you said, that they had not received the Holy Spirit, made Paul question their baptism. Oh yeah, but see what it is. He he still had, after they were baptized, then he laid hands on them. Yeah, but and they received the Holy does, Spirit. What does that? I mean, I don't understand. I mean, that doesn't make sense to me that there's a question about baptism. I mean, if it didn't have anything to do with baptism, why did he just, why was there any questions no, no. about it? No, I'm saying that they did not receive the Holy Spirit as a result of being baptized. They were baptized, then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And in, in the same thing in Acts 8, they did not receive the Holy Spirit when, when Philip baptized them accurately. But then the apostles laid hands on them. Yeah, I understand Mark's question. Yeah, I don't think you're Mark, no, you're not understanding what he's asking. He's saying, why did Paul say, why, why they had not, why did it surprise Paul that they hadn't uh, received See, Paul the asked them the question. Spirit. He yeah. said, did you receive the Spirit? And they answered, no. And then he said, we, we so haven't even it's, heard. It's as if he expected them to receive. Right, right. right. The, the, the way the question, the question is, it's like, it's like, he expected them to have it, the Holy Spirit, and then he, and then they said, "No, we don't." And then he said, "Well, you know." Right. Then he questioned their baptism, like, "If you've baptized, you should have had it." I mean, you know, the way. Well, I but the thing of it is, though, what they were doing, and see, this is what we're going to get back to. I believe all those people that were baptized were had various gifts imparted to them that the early church did not have the New Testament. All they had was the Old Testament scriptures. Oh. And you could not have, I don't believe you could have been a preacher without having one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Like, for example, oh. Paul writes to Timothy, and he tells Timothy not to neglect the gift that is in him through the laying on of his hands. 
And Philip, you read about Philip performing miracles here, but we go back to the Acts of 6 chapter, and Philip is one of the seven that's chosen, and the apostles lay hands on them. And then all of a sudden, after he lays hands on them, then you have these miraculous things. In other words, Philip has the miraculous flowing through him after the apostles lay hands on him. But then Philip, the difference is, these people that had the miraculous they were not apostles, could not impart any gift. And so Simon made the observation uh, uh, that the gifts were imparted to uh, the people there. But Simon made the observation that the gifts were only imparted through the apostles' hands. So he wanted the power. It wasn't a gift Simon was asking for. He wanted the same power the apostles had that he could impart these gifts. And so Philip then has this gift imparted to him, but he can't impart it. And when he baptizes people, they don't have it. Then Peter and John come in and lay hands on them, and they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then here in Ephesus, Paul uh, asked these people about their baptism and the, and the Holy Spirit, and they didn't even hear about it. Well, then he quizzes them further, and so he baptizes them. But then after he baptizes them, nothing happens to them of a miraculous nature. He lays hands on them, and then they speak in these gifts of the Holy Spirit. But I believe that that everywhere the apostles went, that they were imparting these gifts, and that just like we read this incident of Philip converting people in Samaria, and then they sent for the apostles, and they come in and laid hands. But see, you just read that incident. I believe that was the same thing had to be going on all over, that every time people would be converted by somebody like Philip or Stephen or whoever it was, well, then they would send for the apostles, and the apostles were going in and laying hands on them. When Paul writes the Romans, one of the reasons he wanted to get to Rome, he says that I may impart a spiritual gift to you in Romans 1.11, that they may have had people that had been converted in other places and had these gifts and were at Rome, but an apostle had never been to Rome. And so therefore there was nobody to impart uh, all these miraculous gifts. And one of the reasons that Paul was so anxious to get there is so he could impart these miraculous gifts to more people in Rome. But the only point I'm making, though, is that the Holy Spirit was passed on through the laying on of the hands, that it did not come when they were baptized. I think that's real important that the gift of the Spirit was separate from baptism. It's real clear right. that it didn't, that it wasn't a part of the baptism. Right. Because that's one of the questions that's going on here. That is, a lot of people say, well, you received this. Holy Spirit when you're baptized, but there's no scripture here that, that ties that in right at all. And there's no such word in the in the New Testament. Mark, we're on the same. No, but no, no honey, it just doesn't give the information. It says you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't tell you how. Right. And then when you read other passages, it tells you how. In other right, words, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, not necessarily right when you're baptized. See, when you read even the sermon, you only read a fraction of their right. sermon. It says he exhorted them with many other words and all, but you only have a fraction of his sermon. And that's the thing to keep in mind. Anytime you read anything, the, the historian is giving you a part of the account, just a fraction of the account itself. And so he tells you that they'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, but he doesn't bother telling you how. He just so Or when. Right. Well, see, that's why we said that when you finish Acts 2.38, that gift of the Holy Spirit is subject to several interpretations. It's like me saying, writing you a letter and saying, I broke my leg. Well, now, how did I break my leg and when did I break it? 
I didn't tell you. And so unless you read further, you've got a multitude of interpretations. You, you, can, you can say I was in a car accident or that I had osteoporosis or, or whatever you want to, and they're all valid interpretations. So what you're going to do, you've got a choice. You can stop right there and take your guess as to how I broke my leg, or you can read further and see what I say about it. And so Luke is the author of all of Acts. And so Luke just tells you there that, that uh, his big thing is to point out that they preached the gospel and 3,000 were converted. And he gives you the gist of the sermon. And that, they're gonna, and that the prophet Joel is being fulfilled. They're going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But then as he goes on, we, we see that this Holy Spirit is passed on through the laying on the apostles' hands. And then also, we're, we're reading from the same writer. And we see that the same writer uses the term gift of the Holy Spirit and Holy Spirit interchangeably. And we see that in one context, like in Cornelius. That in other words, there's a lot of things we could study in Cornelius, but our, we've only got one point we're considering. And so we look at this and we see in that same context, he uses receive the Holy Spirit and also the gift of the Holy Spirit interchangeably. And that also, from the context of everything we've read, Every time these people are talking about the Holy Spirit, there's something that they can see and relate to. And, and, uh, and Paul is dealing with it from the standpoint of something he can see and relate to. And like I ask myself the question, what if I was told I would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit by whatever interpretation somebody wants to give it? And so I'm baptized. And they say, you got the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, my next question is, what have I got? What gift have I got? You know, that, uh, and, and they say, well, you just got the Holy Spirit. Well, then my question is still, what is he doing? You know, what is he doing for me? Uh, and, and I know he's not giving these people uh, uh, information beyond what the apostles are. He, he may be using through their prophesying what they've got because every time they've got a problem, they have to go to Paul. And like Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, now concerning the things that you wrote to me about. And then he deals with marriage and everything. Well, if these people that have the gifts are able to give revelation beyond what the apostles have, then why do they have to ask Paul and get him to write these answers for them? You know? And then always, even with these people that have these gifts, the apostles stand head and shoulders above them in the miraculous element. In other words, they're always standing back in awe of the apostles, and then we have Luke stating that the apostles you know, were the one that passed these, these gifts on. And then when I look at the apostles from a standpoint of even their understanding, and I say, how do they come to understand these things? And I can look at Peter as an example, and I can see him seeing a vision. And he doesn't understand what that vision means. But he's told to go talk to Cornelius. Well, when he gets to Cornelius' house, the first time thing he does is tell him he doesn't belong here. You know it's not lawful for me to be here. The only reason I'm here is because an angel of God told me to come. And Cornelius says, that's okay. Let me tell you something. So Cornelius relates to him. And Peter's thinking, hey, the same one, God's been speaking to him. He's been speaking to me. And he thinks about it. And I believe Peter says exactly what I would have said or anybody here would have said. He says, now I perceive God is no respecter of persons. But in every nation, he that feareth God and worketh righteousness is acceptable to him. But even when he perceived that, he preached to those people, they believed, they repented, and he's got these six Jews here with him, and they don't want to baptize them. 
And so what's Peter going to do? He perceives it. But these Jews here don't want to baptize those Gentiles. So then the gifts of the Holy Spirit are poured out. And Peter looks over there and he says, okay, now, who wants to forbid the water? That God is acceptable. Well, nobody wanted to forbid the water, so they, they baptized them. But all I can see the Spirit doing is giving information and confirming information. And I can see these gifts being distributed for the purpose of giving information and confirming information. But I see people learning and developing and changing and coming to a better understanding as they take in that information and think about it and meditate on it and, and study it. So you still, it still doesn't explain a couple of things, I guess, and that is in verse 39, what Mark brought out. It says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It says the promises for you and your children, and the promises being referred to here is the Holy Spirit. Right. Of what baptism were you baptized? Right. Well, probably, if anybody had, been, had heard, been baptized into Christ, they would have heard about the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. Right? I mean, because well, they, was, they was, certainly whoever taught them would have had can't, You can't ignore the fact that that was a concern of Paul's. Right. Because, I mean, he, he asked them the question. He said, of what baptism were you? Right. But I'm saying that then the, the Holy Spirit, they had not even heard about these gifts. When he baptizes them, then he lays his hands on them, and they receive these gifts of the Holy Spirit. I know this. This is just this is the NIV, and, and it has different. All these commentaries have different views, but this com this the commentary on that verse about the Holy Spirit says that the promise of the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit is given to all Christians. Yeah, no, but that's, no, that's, uh, that's the commentary of this NIV. Oh yeah, but that don't. That's that's a commentary. In other words, the, well, yeah, it is. It's not. The, it's not the scripture. In other words, where does he back it up with a passage that? I'm well, it's, that, it's his commentary on Acts two thirty eight. Yeah, no. But what I'm saying is, or, no, it's his commentary on Acts two thirty nine. That's his commentary right. on that promise. I'm, I'm saying that when you read it, when you read the initial statement and most initial statements they are open to several possible interpretations. And any one of them might be a possibility. But then you have to go further and see which one and what is actually being talked about. And I'm saying that when we, number one, the term non-miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit doesn't exist. It's just gift of the Holy Spirit. And we can see that if that is a non-miraculous, well then Luke, to me is confusing because when he talks about the gifts of the Holy Spirit that are, are miraculous, he calls them gifts of the Holy Spirit too. In other words, you would have gift of the Holy Spirit that's non-miraculous. But then the same writer talks about miraculous gifts as well, gifts guess, of the Holy Spirit. I guess we ought to talk about that, that term non-miraculous. I guess that term... It's easy to describe what, what the people in the church... The people who have it cannot do perform miraculous gifts, but I guess if it's, I mean, I would agree with you that if you have an indwelling spirit, then it would be a miraculous thing, and whatever it does to you would be miraculous. So in that sense, it wouldn't be non-miraculous, it's just that you wouldn't have the degree of the gift that other people would have. Right, it would, in other words, if 
miracle by nature is circumventing the laws of nature it, uh, by definition. It has to be outside the laws of nature or it's not miraculous. And so if I've got something in me that operates outside my own spirit and my own mind in order to do things for me, then I, I, I would not use the term non-miraculous. I believe that is miraculous. And of course, you know, we haven't discussed at all, there's a lot of other scriptures that relate to this. Romans 8 is Right. But see, here's the point, the reason Acts is so important on, on dealing with this. Every single solitary letter and book in the New Testament was written while apostles are alive in the church. And, and nobody has a completed New Testament. Absolutely nobody when this book is written. And the miraculous element is involved in all these churches. In other words, the, when Paul, it's obvious that the church at Corinth had all kinds of people with miraculous gifts. And Paul made it clear he was the one that imparted those gifts and that they were not inferior to the other churches. In other words, whatever gifts the people that Peter converted had, you guys have too. And so, and, and it's also true with when he writes to the Ephesians. Well, we read Acts 19, how the Ephesians, like when he writes to the Ephesians, and he says that this gift was the earnest or the down payment, you know, the guarantee. Well, we read over here that when he went to Ephesus, that he actually laid hands on these people and imparted these miraculous gifts. And, and, and it was something that they could look at as a guarantee. In other words, what he's writing to the Ephesians on, he's telling them that these very things that they have is an earnest or a guarantee of, of what has been promised them. Well, I'm saying something cannot be a guarantee of me to me if I don't know anything about it. In other words, you can't tell me I've got something that I cannot see or, or it doesn't express itself in any tangible way whatsoever and say, now Paul, that is a guarantee you know, that you have anything. But now if I have a gift in the sense that we read here, then I can see how that is a guarantee that this message is right. And Paul used it that way. Like, for example, when he wrote to the Galatians and people were trying to, Jews were trying to lead them astray back under the law of Moses. Well, notice how he writes in, in Galatians, the third chapter, uh, concerning people that were being led and the gospel was being perverted. He said, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law? Okay, what does he mean by receiving the Spirit? Or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really is for nothing? Does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law, because you believe what you heard. So he's telling them, see, all the time the Judaizers are arguing with these people. And he's saying those miraculous gifts are your guarantee that the message I gave you was from God. And that's what he's calling them back to. Well, the same thing when he speaks of the gift as the earnest, like with Ephesus, that these people didn't have a New Testament. And so all their information from the apostles had been oral. And it was these miraculous gifts that all the time the Judaizers were arguing with them, and these pagan philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics, etc., were arguing with them. 
it was these miraculous gifts that sustained them and, and constantly demonstrated that this new message was from God. And, and that's why he calls the Galatians foolish. Uh, he, he's in essence saying, how can you be there with those miraculous gifts and turn right around and believe a message of people who don't have the miraculous gifts? And so he says, did you receive the miraculous gifts as a result of my preaching the gospel? Or did you receive them as a result of listening to these Jews talk about the old law? Well, of course, they, 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 know, they knew the answer to that. Right? It was a, and so that all the way through in every letter, that in every passage that anybody quotes in any letter, it has to be taken into consideration that this letter is written to Christians who do have these miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit. And that's what the gifts of the Holy Spirit meant to them. Let me just let me just ask you some questions. I, I well, a, before you before you do that, one thing I want to go back to that in Ephesus in chapter 19 of Acts is that a lot of times I go back and listen to these tapes and I realize that when I ask a yeah. or make a statement, you said it ten minutes ago. <laughs> but it just when when Paul he asked these people, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Well, if he asked that question, there's two possibilities: yes, we did, or no, we didn't. Right. So if the answer is no, we didn't, then they could have believed and not received the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's one answer. Or they could say, yes, we did, and they received it. Okay, and then when you go back and say, well, how did they receive it? There's examples that it came through the laying on the apostles' hands. In every instance, there's no instance, right? What you're saying is there's no instance where somebody received the Holy Spirit. The only example apostles coming was the first Gentiles, right. and it had to be because they wouldn't even baptize them. Right. Okay. And it was the first the first time the Jews got the message, and the first time the Gentiles, and ever since then it was by the laying on of hands. And it's not that you'd have just a couple of examples where they lay on hands, but the wording in those examples make it clear to you it's the only way. Like, for example, Simon and Philip and all, and then the thing at Ephesus, and then when Paul writes to Timothy, that the wording itself makes it obvious to you that that's the way it was, it was imparted. Okay, now here's the interesting thing too, is they say no, well if they just said no, well Paul could have assumed then that they'd been baptized in Christ, but they say no, we, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Right. And so when he says that, they say we don't, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit, then Paul asks, then what baptism did you receive? Okay. And so it's because they've not even heard of this spirit, then that causes him to question their baptism. Right. Because it would seem to me, if anybody had been baptized into Christ, it would have been after Pentecost. And then been, the story would have been just straight out pouring into the spirit. So they would have known what he was. You can't imagine after Pentecost. So you think they got baptized, they haven't been baptized since Pentecost? Well, it's like Apollos was teaching, and but he didn't, he didn't understand about Christ. I think if they were baptized before Pentecost, they'd been okay. Just like the apostles, I don't believe they were rebaptized. But these people were baptized when John's is now invalid. Uh, John was looking forward to something. And now they're looking at baptism as actually picturing the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and into Christ and revolving entirely around the cross. And so whoever had taught them was not aware of this. 
And so right, right away, Paul rebaptized them. And in fact, it shows us something on baptism, that it is important that you understand a relation to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the gospel at the, you know, at the time you're immersed in water. And he actually rebaptized them there. Now, what, what you would, uh, what I think you would have to assume is, is that, um, is that Paul's assumption. The reason he asked them why, what kind of baptism did they receive, is because he would have thought that if they had, that they had been taught the baptism of Christ, that they would have known about the Holy Spirit. Right, but he, but the way he asked the question to start with, didn't imply that they had to have had the Holy Spirit if they'd been if they believed in Christ because he said did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed mm -hmm. well they could have answered no to that and possibly he wouldn't even question it but because they said no we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit so he wouldn't even have asked that question of course we don't know that you know we don't know that that would have been <clears throat> but something caused him to ask so my, my, let's see my point is is that is that we, I don't think we can conclude here that Paul would have, would have uh, said. But, but see, it doesn't need to be concluded. And the, the only important element is that there's two, several things here. Number one, gift of the Holy Spirit and receiving the Holy Spirit are used interchangeable by Luke. The what? Gift of the Holy Spirit and receiving the Holy Spirit are used in an interchangeable way by Luke. I don't have a problem with that. Okay, but... Every time that we have it, the miraculous element is involved. Okay? Then the other thing is, when he, he, he states as plain as he can that the Holy Spirit is passed on through the apostles' hands. In other words, it wasn't something where, that people were just baptized. We don't have any example. We passed Acts 2.38, and we're trying to get this other thing to help us interpret it. And I'm saying we have absolutely no example that somebody's baptized and receives the Holy Spirit. But when they're baptized, they need an apostle to impart the Holy Spirit through the laying out of hands. Or we have a situation like the first Gentiles, where they actually get the Holy Spirit before baptism as an evidence to the Jews, so they will baptize them. And then we have the thing in Ephesus, where they do not have the gifts of the Holy Spirit until they impart the, through the laying out of hands. So I'm saying, I, to my mind, well, I don't Acts know how... Acts 2.38, they, they could have. No, I'm saying that Acts 2.38 just says they received the gift of the Holy Spirit, and it doesn't tell you anymore. It says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will. will. Yeah, but, right. it doesn't... but then the question is how. And I'm saying when you come to Acts 8... Well, how you get it is by, being, is by repenting and being baptized. No, well, it's not, it doesn't say that. It say that. See, it says those who accepted his message were baptized. But it doesn't say that they received the Holy Spirit. Well, it says, repent and be baptized. Oh, yeah, I believe they have the gift of the Holy Spirit. Sins, but it you will receive the gift of the yeah, Holy Spirit. But what about the fact they received the gift of the Holy Spirit? The point is how. When or when. Right. Why? The how. Was the right. In other words, there's nothing there that says immediately after you come out of the water, you've got the Holy Spirit. It says they received the gift of well, the Holy Spirit. Well, I know, but the thing that kind of concludes it, though, I mean, you can take this position, I think, is that it's in verse 39, because it, it, it kind of goes on and concludes by saying, 
the promises for you and your children, for all who are far off, and for all, and all whom the Lord your God will call. I, I believe that. I believe that He's dealing in that entire context of that generation, and He would go to those that are far off, the Gentiles. I believe those miraculous gifts went throughout the entire church, and it was in the latter days of the Jewish dispensation, just like Joel prophesied. And see, another I thing that, that for, for all whom the Lord your, our God will call includes us. Okay, but one thing for sure, if you've got to give to the Holy Spirit or I've got it, it's not through the laying on the apostles' hands. Okay, and then the That's other true. thing. I would... Okay, and <laughs> another thing, we That's have. But what I'm saying is, when the same writer, the same writer. When the same writer tells you how you get to give to the Holy Spirit, he says it's through the laying on the apostles' hands. In other words, right. he doesn't tell you how. And actually, it's sort of like we used to tell. He doesn't people say it's the only time. No, well, but I'm saying it's it's like we used to tell people in, in groups about salvation. We would say, remember, they would take a passage that says, "Believe on the Lord and be saved," and we say. Sure, but there's other passages that tell you about repentance, and other passages tell you confession, and other passages baptism, and some put it all, some tell you two or whatever, and you have to read the whole thing. But I'm saying that when he says receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, he doesn't tell you how or when. He just says it's a promise that will come after you're baptized. But then, so we, we can speculate, all, all any of us can, on Acts 2.38, and we can all have a, an opinion as to how and when. But when we continue reading, we find we come to a point where Philip converts some people and baptizes them, and they don't have the Holy Spirit. And so he sends the apostles, and they lay hands on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. And then it says Simon perceived that the Holy Spirit was passed on through the laying on the apostles' hands. And then we have the example in, right. in Acts 19 too. And so I'm saying that uh, when Luke uses this, Every single time except Acts 2.38 is obvious the, the Holy Spirit to him and gift of the Holy Spirit is the miraculous. So if Acts 2.38 is some kind of, of gift that doesn't allow you to speak in tongues or prophesy or do something like that, then it's the only one of the whole bunch. Because, and you've got the same writer that's using it this way. And that uh, every time he uses it, he doesn't try to explain and say, now there's a miraculous and there's a non-miraculous or anything like that. He just uses Holy Spirit and gift in an interchangeable way. And he tells you how it's passed on and that it was something they could see and hear and, and relate to. And then, see, we have to go steal other passages that tell us the reason for it. And the reason that's given is that it was to bear witness that that message was from God. And that was the only reason that the that the, the, you know the gifts and all were there. Well, I think it's real important. I think you got you got a problem, a little bit of a problem. You got a little bit of a problem with this. this for all of those who are far off and for all who well, are far off. one of the things and the reason is because I think you can show that's what the Paul said. Those are far off with the Gentiles. Well, but the thing is, it's real important that no instance where the people receive the Holy Spirit, where it's, real, where it's really explained, is it through baptism. It's always separate from baptism. Okay, and everyone is always miraculous. It's always miraculous. And so today when people say you receive it when you're baptized, there's no scriptural 
Right. He came after baptism, and it was always miraculous. In other words, if that is something that does not involve tongues or anything of that nature, see what I I read. I believe the reason the Church of Christ has so many problems when they deal with the holiness is because the Church of God is actually more consistent with that than the Church of Christ is. The Church of Christ takes all of it and in a miraculous way. And, and I'm saying that then they come along and, and they, they differ with the Church of Christ on this so-called non-miraculous gift and everything like that. But they're actually more, they're more consistent. Where they're wrong is, is they're taking it out of the context of the apostles and coming all the way through the centuries. But then we have something called a non-miraculous gift. And see, it doesn't bother me. I don't even think it's so. It, it doesn't affect anything. And the only reason I became concerned, again, in recent years, well, I is think predominantly the members of the Church of Christ believe in an indwelling. Well, I'm sure in Kingston that's the case. Oh, no, I know at Kingston. Among your more conservative groups, no, this would not be so. I would say that's pretty much true with uh, the people at uh, Jubilee. Jubilee. Yeah, oh, all of them. They don't even invite a speaker unless he believes in it. But what I, what I see, uh, no, I'm saying really, see what bothered me, that's one of the things that bothered me in Jubilee. They talk about places like Freed Hardeman as being... Uh, uh, you know, legalistic, and, and they don't want to hear everything and all like that. But when Freed Hardman built, I've been to several Freed Hardman lectures, and they purposely will invite people that believe both ways, and they'll put them on the forum together to, to discuss it. And Jubilee only invites speakers. I don't believe they would even invite a speaker that did not believe in the person. Well, you have to admit that a lot of people won't go. To Jubilee. I mean, a lot of people that believe in that way probably wouldn't even. Oh, yeah, but there's a lot that do, though. Too. It's like, uh, uh, like I said earlier, I still haven't made up my mind about it. It's, well, it's this, is, this, was, to me. this is the thing, Alvin. If you believe that someone receives the Holy Spirit when they're baptized, where's the scriptural authority for that belief? And when, when you well, try to build it, it down. But I understand but, what, what... In other words, it would be, there's only one passage in all the New Testament that would teach it then. Well, the fact that the... Well, Acts 2.38 and 2.38 and 2.38. Well, see, Daddy, the, the, the thing yes. is, and I'm not supporting it, the only thing is that, that then you have a, then you have then something you that goes contradictory to that when you've got all these passages where people were baptized and they didn't receive it. I think it's kind of like, you know, some of the passages on prayer, but then you go over to... Uh, First John, where he talks about it, if you ask according to his will. Right. You have and the you same cannot thing. ignore that. I mean, you've got to take it in the context. He of, assumes it. There's some, just like when we converse, we don't explain everything we say. D depending on who you're talking to, you know what you can assume and what you can't. And it's just like when we preach, we assume the people believe in God unless we're speaking to atheists. You know, then we will assume that they do. And in the same way, like on the mention, most of the statements on prayer assume that you have that understanding already. And then John gives you the complete statement. If you ask anything according to his will, and then you know that he hears you, you have the petition asked. But we can actually see this in practice when Jesus himself prays, and, is, and God doesn't give him what he asks for. He says, but, but thy will be thy done. Will be done. Then on the other hand, you read a, you read a statement that... Uh, if you have enough faith, you can do such and such and such. Well, that 
is modified by the fact that you can do whatever in faith as long as it's in keeping with the will of God. Talk about that mustard seed. And the Oral Roberts and that crew have been able to validate themselves by saying, by quoting these verses on faith, you know, and they say, oh, you just don't have enough faith, you know. And, and any time they're unsuccessful, it's because the other person doesn't have enough faith. But they have used it for, for years that way. Well, of course, my thing, too. I think it's great that we're studying that. And I've done it, of course, we've done it several times. Well, you can, you can say, see what bothers me on it is uh, there's several things. I have no problem until I hear preachers who are leaving the impression that, that the Holy Spirit is leading them into information. And, and they are coming to these understandings and everything as a result of, of having the Holy Spirit. And I know what, see the reason the, the people in the Restoration Movement study this so much anyway is because they heard so many denominational preachers get up and validate what they said by the Spirit laying it on their heart. You know, and, and people get up and give their testimonies of what the Holy Spirit has done. And you've got all these contradictory things, you know, that the Spirit is. And I can see how, for example, if I was a young girl that come from a certain background, and I was converted, and just like we mentioned earlier, that our background will allow us to do a lot of things in good conscience, that if I believed I had the Holy Spirit, that if I was running around in little bikinis and things like that, and my background told me that was okay, I'd feel comfortable because I had to, you know, as long as I felt good about it, the Holy Spirit would be bearing witness with me on that. Or the same with some of the other things uh, that, you know, that a, that a guy or whoever it is might have, that I would have a tendency to give a real high priority to my feelings. Whereas the other way, my feelings... I look at my feelings as being the slave of the information I have in my mind. And that if the information I have in my mind is right, my feelings are accurate, but my feelings are inaccurate to the degree that the information I have is inaccurate. I think a good decision should be based both on confirmation by information and feelings. Yeah, but I'm saying the feelings, but give me an example of what I'm talking about. When they brought... Uh, Jacob, the coat of Joseph dipped in blood, he cried, and he mourned for years, and his feelings were definitely affected. Joseph was alive, though, all right? Then when they come back from Egypt, and they said, hey, Joseph is alive, he refused to believe them. He still, in other words, they had, he had to have some evidence, but the point is, in each case, his feelings were wrong, because he was operating on erroneous information. And you can actually believe a lie, and if you believe it, your feelings will react to it as if it were the truth. And so, I mean, I think feelings are obviously a part and all, but I believe that a person has to always be careful that he's putting the right information in his mind. I think that feelings are very... You have to be careful, like you said, that you don't let your feelings determine 
a decision because you have to be, you're not objective. And like you said, the person who wears the bikini and they've been brought up that that's okay or whatever, that's assuming that it's wrong, then, then they're, they're feeling, if they're going by their feelings, they're actually following the wrong lead. Right. And then, not only that, your feelings are going to be a product of the way you've been brought up and everything, the information. So you would have a tendency, as long as you felt good about something, and you'd have a tendency when you went to your preaching that if it made you feel good, you know, that you would identify with that, or songs or anything. Like, for example, there are songs that I really like. I think they've got a, they sound pretty. That I don't sing because I don't agree with. Yeah, no, uh, uh, there's in fact there's a number of songs that I think are pretty that I, I don't agree with the sentiments, so I don't sing the song. A lot of times, though, you know, we're in a position where we have to make decisions without all the information. Oh yeah. And it's under those circumstances that I think that you have to be led by your intuition and feeling. Oh yeah, no, no. I'm saying you have a gut feeling, but even as you make those decisions, you realize that. A point of information could change this. Oh, so, absolutely. But, but see, what I'm saying is that if a person believes he has the Holy Spirit that is leading him, that every time he has a strong feeling about some spiritual truth, I don't, I don't believe. Well, that. see, that's okay, how it's but used. But that's how it's used. That's yeah. how people see, use. You don't believe that the spirit. But I'm saying the people that do, that is exactly the way they they use it. And I'm saying that if I believed that I had it, I would think, well, if he's not doing that for me, what is he doing? In other words, in these areas where I want so right, so bad to do what's right, and then I have this feeling yeah, that this is right. I think if he's not giving me any help there then what is he doing for me, you know? Right, and here's the problem, Al, is when somebody feels like the Spirit leads them to do this, and then you come along, or something, something happens, comes along, and that that feeling that they had is proven to be wrong, then they're, they're in a turmoil because they felt like the Spirit led them to do this, and that, led them in this direction. And he couldn't. And then here, if they'd have known something or whatever, they wouldn't have decided that. See, they're you got the same wrong. problem. You've got the same problem, Mark, if a person has a misunderstanding. You get the same well, it's, but it's not the same thing. See, if, if you attribute, oh, I made a mistake, I had a wrong understanding, that's one thing. No, I mean, but, let's suppose you have a misunderstanding of the scriptures and you operate on the misunderstanding but he's subject to change but see that see i'm open to oh i made a mistake or spirit's infallible would be infallible but when somebody's being led by the spirit you can't argue against it that's why that uh that's why that among us we are actually within our fellowship we are actually easier to talk to on some things than people that have this thing in the spirit not because we are information based and we and we realize that but i'm saying that as we get what i'm hearing more and more and 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 what i'm reading uh is it's the same type of stuff that i was reading from people in other groups years back about the holy spirit and it starts with those little statements but i'm I believe personally that some of these preachers are just giving out what the people are willing to accept right now. The, the end, the, when I read their writings and I listen to them, they're saying that the church needs to be led by the Spirit, and they're definitely making it clear that it's something more, you know, than, than information. And that's, that's it's real frustrating. If you ever t talk to somebody that really believes that, it's real frustrating because 
you can know that they're wrong on something, that they're misinterpreting the scripture or something, but they're not willing to even look at it because they feel like the Spirit's led them to, to believe what they believe. Yeah, well, you know, we didn't get there yet, but in Romans it talks about being led by the Spirit. Say just pour a little cream and the, the Spirit does it within you. picture of it, you know, which is... Heavy cream bristle. Maybe having misunderstandings, and those misunderstandings are well. Kind of, it's kind of, kind of, kind of faith shaking if you, you know, if you rely on information, and that information is not correct, or it doesn't turn out the way you thought it was supposed to. You know, then, then you know you have. It's a kind of a faith check, I guess. To, yeah. Well. But there's a difference, I think, Albert, that we all know that when we when we realize we get our our information from reading a study, we all know there's a possibility that there's a word that we have a wrong definition of in our mind or, or that maybe we've mislooked at the context or maybe there's another verse we haven't considered and that could change that. We all realize that on you know any number of things. And so it means that we're, that's why we're constantly re-examining, just like I've had a policy for years and years and years of, I just read the Bible through all the time, Genesis to Revelation, Genesis to Revelation. And I'm always, and I do it with a different Bible. I go through and I mark up one Bible and make notes and I cast that aside and I get me another because I, I don't want to be influenced by my own notes. I want to start with a, with a blank sheet. And so... I do that regularly because I know, you know, those possibilities, and I feel that uh, that I've improved in my understanding. Like, for example, I was at one time very legalistic, and now I have a completely different attitude towards salvation and fellowship and all that I had, you know, some years back. Mm -hmm. But the only reason I came to that different attitude was through just simply studying and re-examining, and whenever I would. Uh, a read anything, I would go and, you know, Brenda, check it out and things like that. Brenda, they wonderfully, didn't they? Here's, but, something, here's something else yeah, that happens. It's when people feel like they're being led by the Spirit, then if you're, if you're really being led by the Spirit, why do you have to really worry about getting the exact interpretation of some passages? Because the Spirit's going to lead you anyway. Yeah, I can see so, the danger in it. But there are a few passages. I'm like everybody else from the standpoint, but I think it's wonderful. I think it needs to be studied. I think I think it's hard to study it in a 30-minute setting or a 45-minute setting. And yeah. that's one reason. That's why these types of Bible studies are essential that people are going to grow yeah, and develop their understanding. When it's, it's kind of uncomfortable to not feel like you just see it and everybody can see well, it. Well, like, well, what I Immediately, you know? Personally, now, really, my own feelings aren't. I feel absolutely confident. I mean, in other words, all I know is when I lay down and I look at the times in my life where I've been wrong in my thinking on something, I came to realize I was wrong, not never because of something that going on in my mind, that I'm that it was always through information. It was either I heard a sermon and then I checked it out and, and was persuaded by that reasoning that I was wrong, or I read something or whatever it was. But I've never had a time 
where I just simply uh, had, you know, the right information there in some sense. I know that any sermon I've ever prepared, I've always had to work real hard on it and master the material and everything. There's never been anything brought to my memory. Uh, there's never been a sermon I preached that, but that I sat down and remembered I had forgot something. You know that, uh, and that, you know, when I see these people, like for example, I debated a guy one time on the subject of, of, in a public discussion. And so I just told him, I said, that he told me that he believed it brought to his memory. You know, it's one thing. I said, well, I'll tell you what, we'll discuss, and neither one of us will use any notes. Well, let's just, let's just get up there and, and discuss it without using any notes whatsoever. And uh, it didn't bother me because I felt my memory was as good as his was, so I wouldn't bother it, but he wouldn't do it. And he, he wanted his notes. Well, then while we were debating, he had these little cards he was just using right and left, you know, with his, his on his notes and all. Well, Peter wasn't standing up or preaching with any notes and cards or anything like that. I, I'm, I've been trying to think, uh, way to tell you that, because I don't believe, it, when I said I tended to believe in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, not like, not like y'all are talking about it. Oh, I know that. I know uh, that. But I don't know how I exactly, I guess kind of like praying and trying to make the right, a right decision about something or the right things to say. Uh, not that I thought something came to me or something, right. but to think that scriptures actually uh, say that uh, the Spirit prays in words too deep for. Well, they I know He interprets our prayers. I mean, because we don't know the right words to say, but it's it's a much more. It's probably where you're identifying with God and it's your spirit that's... Well, see, I believe I that... Uh, with him. We, I don't... I, I believe we take for granted what we already have, that God's spirit dwells within all of us. He's the father of our spirit. And when this old body goes back into the graves, our spirit, all death means to separate, our spirit will separate from our body and go to the Hadean realm to be to be with God. And God is spirit. And they that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the writer said he's the father of our spirits, Hebrews 12, 9. So I already am a spiritual being made in the image of God. And God is my father. But I'm I'm in this Paul calls it a tabernacle or a tent or a temple. But I'm I'm in this body now. And when he says that I'm made a little lower than the angels the angels are spiritual beings that are not in They're not in, they don't have the limitations of a physical body. And I think the only difference between us and the angels is that we have the limitations of a physical body. And eventually we will be as the angels. 